Hello, and welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 9, Church Structure and Canon Law. Canon Law, or the Law of the Church, like the other areas of law we have discussed, developed quite organically meaning there was no one person or body of clerics who simply got together one day and decided they were going to create a system or a body of law that would be imposed on all their subjects, in this case, Christians. Rather, canon law developed slowly over time as disputes and situations arose that needed attention. What are we going to talk about today is the positive ecclesiastical law, or man-made Church law that governs the structure of the church itself, including the administration of the church's seven sacraments. By authority granted to the apostles and their successors directly by Christ, the hierarchy of the church, including the pope and the bishops, over time developed rules and requirements governing such issues needing, that needed to be addressed in real life. Of course, nothing in these man made ecclesiastical laws or what are called canons, can contradict what is contained in the divine and natural laws and revealed to the church in Holy Scripture and by tradition. Nevertheless, canon laws gained binding force as Christianity spread across Western Europe, ultimately not only within the church itself, but in secular law as well, because many of these canon laws were adopted by secular authorities in centuries to come. Inevitably, such laws were going to come in conflict, though, with secular laws, because in some instances, the church needed to deal with problems that had significant secular impact beyond the spiritual realm. This process of development over time is what will be covered in this episode today. Because many of these canon laws needed to deal with problems, not necessarily involving theological or religious matters, it was not uncommon for those developing church disciplines and rules to draw on both the Germanic customary law and the Roman law, such as the Justinian Code. In fact, many of the laws of the United States today originated in either Germanic customs or Roman law, but were adopted by the canon law and then passed down through the ages into the secular common law of Great Britain, which finally made its way into American law. We'll see a few of those examples today. In the beginning times of the church, what became the canon law simply consisted of individual papal decrees or canons developed following ecumenical councils of the bishops that remained unorganized and intertwined with both religious and secular provisions. For a Christian in the early medieval era, there was no distinction between church law and secular law. There was just an understanding that law existed and was received from various sources of authority depending on the circumstances and issues that were involved. It was Gratian, an Italian-born Benedictine monk in 1140, that took a dramatic step towards compiling and organizing these various laws into a systematized body of law, primarily out of pure necessity. His famous work was called the Decretum, and as the medieval world began to expand and unhinge itself from a purely agricultural-based economy, 
society inevitably became more complex with more problems to solve. So Gratian's work helped define the notion of law itself and made it comprehensible. Various forms of legislation, judicial decisions, and commentaries on those decisions. Gratian included them all. And he concluded that he that they could be organized in a way that made the law accessible and reliable. Gratian's decretum became the primary resource for canon law until 1918, when a new code of canon law was compiled and adopted. But what we were really interested in for purposes of this episode is not what canon law would become in the future, but the process itself of developing canon law and how it impacted or affected society in general, especially during that crucial period prior to the Magna Carta. This episode will cover the structure of the church as a corporate body itself, as well as important substantive laws which govern the relations among church authorities, clergy, and the laity. Church authority, much like other forms of authority in medieval times, looks like a pyramid. At the top of that pyramid was the Pope the Bishop of Rome, who of course still reigns today and is the supreme monarch of the church and serves as the vicar of Christ. The Pope serves as the supreme legislator, supreme administrator, and the supreme judge of the church. Although throughout a good portion of this of time before the time of Pope Gregory the uh, Seventh, who reigned in the 11th century, the practical exercise of that authority was not always possible. This is why prior to 1059, when the church instituted reforms to strengthen the church's position amongst various secular powers, popes could be chosen by laymen, even kings, emperors, and lords. This was because the power of the papal office itself was distinct from the sacrament of holy orders by which a deacon, priest, and bishop received their respective spiritual authority. After 1059, this power to elect the Pope was given to cardinals, also a title of distinction within the church outside of holy orders, but usually held by respected clerics and bishops. Although the Pope retained supreme authority, it has never been the case that the Popes acted as sole totalitarian dictators. In fact, from the beginning, Popes would frequently call councils of bishops together to resolve issues in dispute, including doctrinal ones. Later, the Pope would develop his own administrative structures, such as the Chancery or Exchequer, in order to carry out those more temporal duties of his office. As mentioned in prior episodes, dioceses were instituted across Western Europe, each under the authority of a bishop appointed by the Pope. Again, here, the bishop's right to govern his diocese or his see was a matter of jurisdiction and could only be received from the Pope. It could be given just as much as it could be taken away. Unlike the spiritual authority that you get from the receipt of the sacrament of holy orders. And like the Pope on a universal level, each bishop acted as the legislator, administrator, and supreme judge within his own diocese, subject to the authority of the Pope, of course. While the bishop assigned to an individual diocese certainly wielded both teaching and juridical authority, the papacies reached down to the local level existed as, as well when necessary. Especially after the time of Pope Gregory VII, these papal agents more regularly became involved at the local level. The legates, judge delegates, and papal nuncios 
all exercised various levels of authority on behalf of the Pope. And of course, any decision made by these agents were subject to being overruled by the Pope himself. Large dioceses were assigned to archbishops, while the smaller ones were assigned to bishops. A group of dioceses were often grouped together under the authority of an archbishop metropolitan. A metropolitan may be assigned certain administrative functions under canon law, but they were primarily administrative functions, as each bishop maintained their spiritual authority within their own diocese. And within each diocese, there were local parishes under the authority of a parish priest appointed by the bishop. This is where the church structure really encountered the lay faithful on a daily basis. This is where the sacraments were administered and where the peasant could attend the Mass. Bishops, however, would travel from parish to parish to administer the sacrament of confirmation, because confirmation was one of the sacraments that only a bishop can give. Now, within each parish, the priest may delegate certain tasks to assistant priests, uh, deacons, or even lay people, depending on particular needs of the parish. Only the ordained were permitted to administer sacraments, however. Uh, this line of authority with the Pope at the top, uh, going down through the archbishops and bishops to the parish peace level, constituted the secular clergy. It's called the secular clergy because they maintain an active presence in the secular world, ministering to the faithful, but also acting to defend the rights of the church among various secular authorities. Now, imagine another line of authority drawn down from the papacy, separate but parallel to the secular clergy. This line can be referred to as the religious clergy. These groups of religious were organized into independent religious orders that operated outside the direct jurisdiction of the parallel diocese systems just mentioned. These orders would have their own superiors recognized by the Pope and often operate their own religious houses. Administratively, these houses could be grouped into regions depending on the size of the religious order. These religious houses were either male or female houses under the authority of an abbot or an abbess. It was under the authority of these abbots and abbesses where the religious devoted their lives to various spiritual activities, often avoided the temptations of the world, and focused on prayer. Both the religious houses under the abbots and the diocese under the bishops played an important role in feudal life because they controlled and operated significant areas of land and the resources on the land. The bishops and abbots acted as feudal lords in their own right and played a powerful but special role within the feudal system because they not only needed to satisfy secular needs, but at the same time provided spiritual services to the local communities of the villages and manors. This interaction with the feudal and manorial systems, whether acting as spiritual leaders or feudal lords, necessarily required clerical authorities to address various problems and disputes when they arose, especially if the problems touched on a matter related to the sacraments or the moral life. And it is out of this necessary and unavoidable role that the church played in daily life that canon law developed and matured. And in many ways, it developed and matured much faster in a more organized way than the feudal law or manorial law did. This canonical authority was laid upon this quilt of interactive and dynamic relationships already existing and simultaneously developing in the medieval world. 
from a modern viewpoint, this patchwork of rules and authority would seem confusing and chaotic. But to those who lived in those times, it was more or less natural and served the needs of the communities. The remainder of this episode will focus on various aspects of this canon law that developed up until the time of Pope Gregory VII's death in 1085 AD. The role of the church and papal authority, especially in secular affairs after 1085, will be discussed in future episodes because that will play a vital role in the Magna Carta controversy. For purposes of this episode, we will see how canon law contributed to the notion uh, of law that lasts down to our time in the United States today. So canon law developed over time to address specific problems with individuals, especially the clergy and certain subject matters. This is why using modern parlance, we can say that the church exercised both subject matter and personal jurisdiction. The church claimed personal jurisdiction over secular clergy and members of religious households, religious students, crusaders, those in need of support, such as the poor or widows, even Jews in cases uh, where they were in disputes against Christians, and travelers such as merchants and sailors. This became very important in later medieval times because clergy would claim immunity from various secular, royal, and feudal courts. Subject matter jurisdiction, however, extended to anyone, even the lay people, depending on the specific matter at issue. The remainder of this episode will deal with the primary subject matter that canon law applied to because it was in this sphere of authority where the church contributed the most to the development of law and jurisprudence in Western Christendom. So the first significant area contribution, and in, and in a way the genesis out of which the other areas of law grew, was within the realm of marriage and what we would call today or in modern times as family law. The church, understandably, was heavily interested in this area because matrimony is one of the seven sacraments of the church. To properly administer the sacrament, it became necessary to develop some guidelines or rules about who can marry. Naturally, the church also needed to find avenues for dealing with more complicated situations, such as pregnancy and children that resulted outside of wedlock as well. Now, marriage at its core is a contract in the sense that it's an exchange of promises between one man and one woman that must be freely given to be bound to each other until the death of one of the spouses. It was the foundation and basic unit of society. But marriage is more than just a contract. It's a lifetime covenant that, unlike a simple contract, cannot be broken. This was a matter of divine law. It's so there is no such thing as divorce in the modern sense. Another common problem that arose was what happened when there was a dispute over whether the exchange of promises ever took place. There was no such thing as marriage certificates or a government bureaucracy that kept track of these things. Well, the church would need witnesses other than the spouses to testify as to whether the contract of marriage took place. These witnesses did not have to be priests or clergy until many centuries later under the canon law. But one can see the need for such witnesses, out of which grew the modern-day custom of best man and bridesmaid. Their role was not just ceremonial, but really purely functional under the canon law. And in those cases where no witnesses could be had, the canon law allowed for the recognition of marriage 
even without witnesses in certain cases. This survives today in America and England as what we know as the common law marriage. So we can see the flexibility and practicality of canon law and its operation in order to effectuate the common good of a community or society. Now, marriages were presumed valid unless determined by a church tribunal, usually operating under the authority of a bishop, that the marriage in fact never existed and was declared nullified. This is not the same as divorce, because the ecclesiastical authority here is making a determination that the marriage never came into existence in the first place because a certain requirement of the marriage bond was not fulfilled. But if that was the case, then how would the property of this relationship be divided upon the declaration of nullity? Or what was the, the status of the children born out of this relationship? See, these, these types of questions were ancillary, but necessary, uh, necessary to resolve. And the church managed to develop over time a body of law that addressed all of these issues. And in doing so, rules about inheritance were also developed. Under customary Germanic law, there was no such thing as a will. The local tribal customs would determine how property was distributed upon death. For the most part, the church did not even initially need to get involved in these areas because the local customs would just govern what happened. But over the over time, the church did become interested because individuals would want to ensure that upon their death, a certain portion of their possessions would be donated to the benefit of the church. As such, the church needed to find ways to ensure the wishes of the decedent were honored to maintain the support of the church. But the church as the protector of orphans and widows also had an interest in making sure the possessions of the decedent father or husband were given to the benefit of the widows and orphans as well. And in these efforts to protect possessions from devolving to the community at large or even to the lords of the person who died under this developing feudal system required the church to come up with means to effectuate these interests. From this developed the law of wills and trusts, very much, of course, still in use today. As mentioned as well, was the development of principles underlying contract law. These principles arose out of the need to solve problems with the marriage contract. As mentioned, there could be impediments to entering into a marriage. And from this, uh, from this rules governing impediments to contract formation in general were, were developed. But also the church recognized the circumstances of parties could render the contract void as well. Was there a mistaken understanding of the parties about the an essential element of a contract, for example? In the context of marriage, what if a woman happens to marry a man who is incapable of siring a child? Something extremely important in medieval times and, essential, an, and an essential component of the marriage contract. Well, this could render the marriage contract vol, null and void. What happens if the contract lacks parity and one party unconscionably takes advantage of another or, or lies about a necessary aspect of the arrangement at the time the contract is entered into? So rules governing contracts that exist to this day in American law were developed out of the church's need to address these types of problems. 
Now, the church also managed to find itself involved with problems dealing with property, and this became quite tricky because, as we saw in prior episodes, property, especially real property, was governed by various feudal and customary laws, subject to the authority of the monarch or secular feudal lords. But the church needed to be involved with this because it's estimated that the church controlled between one-fourth and one-third of all the land in Western Europe at its high point. And in this sense, the church was not independent to the feudal system, not at all. They were major players in this system, actually. A parish may hold the land from uh, a bishopric, for example, while a religious abbot could serve as a lord of a manor in which secular peasants lived and raised their families. Out of this reality, canonists, those who specialized in, in canon law, grew heavily on Roman precedents and Germanic customs who operate within this feudal system that the church found herself in, but managed to still also make significant contributions to the development of law in Western Christendom while doing so. For example, corporation law was developed to a great extent because of the church's need to hold land as an entity rather than as an individual person. It would do no good, for example, for a monastery to hold land just to have it revert to a lord upon the death of one abbot in a long chain of abbots who may run a particular religious house. It was really the religious order that held the land for whom the abbot acted as its agent. But there needed to be a legal system or legal recognition of this reality, and canon law developed that. The canonists also needed to develop remedies to manage the property. As we saw in previous episodes on feudalism, possession and use of property was of the utmost importance. Now, what happens when someone wrongfully squats on property? Or what happens if there's a legitimate dispute as to who may rightfully possess land? Well, as you can imagine, in early Germanic times before Christian influence, one way to solve the problem was to physically enter the property challenged and remove the person believed to be trespassing, or if necessary, simply just bash them head over, uh, over the head with a rock and remove them that way. Well, as this was something a typical religious or secular priest was not going to do, the church developed rules and laws for dealing with this situation to avoid the need for self. Help. And in fact, this effort to move away from self help to a standardized system of dispute resolution was instrumental in developing uh, the notion of a rule of law. But how was this rule of law to be administered? On one hand, we saw that tribal assemblies, which developed into royal and manorial courts, were being utilized more and more over time as the feudal system developed. But there still lacked a formalized system of procedure by which to operate other than just the basic notion of a trial by jury of one's peers. Unlike these secular procedures, ecclesiastical authorities who tended to be more literate than the average peasant recognized the need to have written procedures. Complaints, therefore, needed to be in writing, not just verbally lodged at an assembly taking place outdoors. The judgments were also in writing. Testimony was taken under oath, which carried significant religious and spiritual penalties in the event someone lied under oath. Also, penalties for perjury were imposed. 
It was not uncommon under Roman or Germanic law for others to substitute in as a party in order to argue or make a case. But this practice raised significant theological concerns because these substitutes would assume the rights and duties for other another person. Well, the canonists realized they needed a way for someone to act on behalf of another without assuming liabilities or duties themselves personally. So the idea of legal representation developed out of this need, which of course is still with us to this day. Rules of evidence were also developed out of the need to render fair judgments in the eyes of God. The issues which the canonical tribunals addressed often had eternal consequences. You know, for example, to make a finding that a marriage was null or had never existed effectively allowed the parties to marry someone else. And if the church got that wrong, it could be playing a role in, in causing adultery, which was a mortal sin. So it became clear that the church was making these, these decisions. Um, they, it needed a way to ensure the information uh, it, it, that was being received, that the, that the person making the decision, uh, he needed to make sure that the information being received was reliable. And as a result, took an interest in the investigation process to ensure reliability. Well, rules of evidence developed out of this need to avoid considering information not relevant to the issue at hand or to simply accept evidence presented that was inherently unreliable or obviously incorrect. So as this organic development of canon law over time progressed, it became obvious to those who took a special interest in making sure that these laws were applied effectively that certain timeless legal principles could be discerned and often correlated to religious and spiritual principles known in the world of, 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 of philosophy and theology. And like philosophy or theology, it became clear that this human law or ecclesial law could, could also be organized around certain fundamental principles that seem to be pre-existing or all-encompassing natural to the human condition. At the end of the day, the logical, moral, and political aspects of these basic legal principles were themselves grounded in principles of the divine and natural law. And what I mean by that is it became more and more clear to those interested in these ideas that certain sets of legal principles could find their roots in the divine laws as revealed in Holy Scripture and the tradition of the church. As And which essentially was the natural moral law, which principles St. Paul said were written on the hearts of every man. St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, would take these concepts of divine, natural, ecclesial, and secular human law and ultimately fit them together in his Summa Theologica uh, that was written in the 13th century after Magna Carta. But when it comes to just the canon law itself, as Legal historian Harold Berman writes, quite rightly, the canon law as a system was more than rules. It was a process, a dialectical process of adapting rules to new situations. So while perhaps done initially out of necessity, it became the process by which law would develop for all of Western Christendom and to which the modern world is greatly indebted to to this day. This concludes our introductory episode of the canon law. We will return to the canon law and the church's interaction with secular authorities in later episodes. 
But next, I plan to introduce yet another layer of complexity to this ever-expanding world of Western Christendom prior to the Magna Carta, as we encounter the men of the North, the same people we commonly refer to today as the Normans. <laughs>